chapter 6. I was interested to watch y'all when our technology dropped us right there at the end of the song service. Man, this is like throwback weekend. You're going to have to really use a Bible. And uh, are y'all all right today? Everybody's okay? All right. Still asleep maybe a little bit. All right. Matthew chapter 6. We take another step with Jesus in the model prayer. And I want to start off this, <laughs> this morning with um, this basic observation. I, I said this a couple of weeks ago uh, as it relates to teenagers, that one of the primary jobs of a teenager from the time they finish the sixth grade to the time they graduate from high school is that they must rebel. Now, the teenagers are going, yes, permission from the pastor. But actually, that's a developmental thing. And uh, part of the deal, you don't want a sixth grader uh, to come from the time they're in sixth grade totally dependent on mom and dad to the time they graduate from high school still being totally dependent on mom and dad. And then all of a sudden you send them off to college. Doesn't work well. So what you have to do as a parent is you have to kind of get a controlled rebellion during those six or seven years, or in some cases eight or 12 years, however long it takes them to get through that time. Now... With that in mind, I want to give you an insight into how some of that went at our house, okay? Because um, one of the things that tends to happen with teenagers, sorry guys, but the reality is that teenagers take the task of rebellion and they push it beyond its logical limits. And so in my house, we had a revolution at one point. And I remember vividly the course of the conversation. It was with our oldest son. And uh, he decided right after he graduated from high school that he should be the man of the house. Uh, Let me just give you one brief understatement. Ain't going to work at my house, all right? So in the uh, discussion that followed, especially the way he began to treat his mother, uh, I decided that he wasn't all that important to our family anyway. We'd just take him out. And then his mom decided, uh, you know, you don't really need to go to jail for the rest of you. Okay, so let's have... So I decided I would just have a conversation with him. And here's how the conversation went. I sat him down and I said, son, there are two rules in this house that you must get. The first rule is, I am the king. The second rule is, your job is to keep the king happy. Now, let me tell you something. That's terrible parenting. All right? Now, it got the message across, and we had an opportunity then to kind of work with him uh, on pulling the rebellion in just a little bit. But uh, that's the basic tenor of the whole thing. I am the king. Your job is to keep the king happy. I want you to hold on to that for just a second as we go into another petition that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount in the model prayer. Now, this is one that just flows off of the tongue. It's kind of like the first couple of things we've looked at here. We get so into just reciting uh, the model prayer that we don't really stop and think, First of all, what did Jesus mean in the first place by throwing this in there? And secondly, what are the implications of that statement on my life in a day-to-day kind of a context? Here's 
in, a, in essence, what I'm going to say today is Jesus instructs us to pray for a revolution. Now, in our family, our oldest son threw a revolution and it backfired. It did not work for him. But the fact of the matter is you and I in our daily living tend to live in revolution. We go to the established authority in this world and essentially we say, I'm not doing what you say. Remember just a year ago? In what was, came to be called the Arab Spring. All across the Middle East we saw kingdoms as they, the people, began to rise up against the established order and the established authority and their little kingdoms there. And they stood up and they said, we're not going to do it that way anymore. Is it possible that Jesus has us praying for revolution? My answer to that is absolutely, but we need to make sure we get the focus correctly in it. Back to the model prayer. It reads very simply this way, our Father, the one in heaven, I know that's not the way we normally say it, but our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to stop there because I'm not even going to go that far today. Let's look at this petition. It's a request It's written like the other one was, let your kingdom come, just like it was, let your name be holified. If you happen to be here last week, maybe that triggers for you where we were. In this case now, Jesus comes and he says, the next petition, the one under the one that says, let your name be holified in the way I live my life, now is the petition that says, let your kingdom come. But as we get to that, we need to really kind of make sure we understand what he is saying and what he's not saying. The key word, obviously, here is the word kingdom. Some people take this as if it is a petition that we would ask Jesus to go ahead and send his kingdom, and we think in our minds with that the end of the ages, the consummation of time, and the second coming of Christ. You might remember that old song that uh, some of you may remember by the Gaithers years ago. When I was growing up, the churches that my dad pastored, they sang this all the time. The king is coming. The marketplace is empty, no more traffic in the street, all the builder's tools are silent, etc., etc., because the king, that is Jesus, returns to take us all back to heaven. There would be some who will tell you that that's what Jesus is instructing us to pray here. Just, I'll put it in my terms. If that were true, and it's not, I don't believe that's at all what Jesus means here. If that was true, then the way he would be telling us to pray is, Lord, just get it over with. And I would submit to you, we don't have to ask that that kingdom come. It's coming. We don't have to somehow talk God into just getting it over with and getting on with the gathered body in heaven for eternity. It's going to happen. So I don't believe at all. Matter of fact, not only does that not fit the overall teaching of Scripture, it doesn't teach or doesn't fit what Jesus seems to be teaching all through the book of Matthew for us. One of the main emphases that Jesus gives in the book of Matthew in his teaching is this recurring theme of the kingdom of God. I think he has a lot more in mind for us here than that prayer that is focused on later. He's telling us to pray revolution now. So what is revolutionary prayer as we 
find it here. Here's one of the basic building blocks for us as we come to this. You have to acknowledge that you and I are inherently self-centered. We do what we want. We want what we want. Now, I've used this as an example several times. I just highlight it again because now I've begun to really take pleasure in listening to you as you see this happen. You remember the road talking about going down 69 and where it comes down to one lane just on the other side uh, of the catfish place down there? And now I'm starting to hear y'all come back as you make... Well, I started to say you make fun of people. It's not really that as much as it just kind of gets under your skin. The people come up on the side lane and they rush to get in front of you. Let me give you another way to test this out, not just there. As you go to work tomorrow, well, maybe you're off tomorrow. Let's say this week when you go back to work, if you happen to not be the boss, why don't you walk into your boss's office and say, you know what, I've been thinking. I don't really believe that it's fair that I have to be up here all the time. So I think from now on, I'm just going to run uh, a work, work schedule that's like three hours a day. Now, I still want my same salary. I want to be able to get all the same benefits that I'm getting. But this, is, this working thing is a little, little overblown. When you say that to him, what do you anticipate his or her response? They're going to be selfish with you. They're going to tell you, you don't get to decide that. Well, actually, they'll tell you, you can decide that if you want, but you won't get paid very much. Matter of fact, you probably get paid nothing before it's over with. Because bosses tend to be selfish. Companies tend to be selfish because we're all selfish. You don't, do, do you have to teach a little kid the word mine? Somehow they get that, don't they? What you have to do is you have to teach them to share. Well, at least I had to teach mine to share. Those are parts of us, parts of how we're put together, that just come with the territory. I believe that that is the essence of sin. That sin nature that we all have is given to control. I will control my environment. I'll control my schedule. I'll control everything about me. And then when we get into trouble with other people is when our control bumps up against their control. But when we really get into trouble is the fact that our control gets into God's control area. So as we come to this passage again, it is a petition for revolution. But the point of the revolution is not us against God, it's us against us. Notice again, when you pray... Pray this way, and then Jesus begins walking through, and what he's done is he has established that God is God. Our Father. That's the intimate term. We talked about that, but that's so contrary to the Jewish way of thinking. He takes a next step to make sure that we get it right. He is the one in the heavens. There's not any other like him. He is God above all. And that's where we begin in prayer. But because of that and because of who we are, the next step is to pray that our lives then would reflect who he really is. Let your name be hallowed or holified, as I said last week. And so now he turns and he addresses that part of us that always seeks control. 
the self-centered part of who we are. And this is where the revolutionary part of it is. This is a prayer of orientation once again, but this one has to do with us. Kingdom is the key term. And there's three things, at least three things, but I'll talk about three very quickly, that have to be in place for there to be a kingdom. First of all, there has to be a king, right? Or a ruler. Let's use that term because that will help me on the next couple of points here. There has to be one who is in charge of the whole thing. You remember King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. He was in charge. He was the king there. We can go to all like even the Middle East. We talk about uh, the uh, Saudi Arabians and the the royal family. There's somebody in charge. Now, it's not hard for us to know that that's who Jesus is talking about here. In their age, when Jesus was on that hillside talking with those gathered disciples of his, and he talked about this kingdom, then one of the things they immediately would have gone to is the Roman Empire and that occupying force over them that represented Caesar, the head of all of it, back in Rome. And he had the ability to say, this is law. In every kingdom, there has to be a king or a ruler. In the kingdom of heaven, then, who is king? This is one of those points in the service where I like to see if you're really awake, okay? It's audience participation time. I'll ask a question, and if you're awake, answer back, okay? In the kingdom of heaven, who is king? Now, wait a minute. Now, I didn't really intend to set you up, but I do want to make sure you are given a good, honest answer. In the kingdom of heaven, who is king? We want to say God, and that is the right answer. That's the Sunday school answer. But remember, Jesus is talking about prayer here. So in your prayer life, who is the king of heaven? Now be careful how you answer that, because one of the things that happens on a recurring basis in my life, I suspect it's true in yours, and that is that when it comes to prayer, I easily push him aside and say, I'm going to be king, let me tell you what needs to happen here. And so in prayer, we lose sight of the fact that he's king. And the reason we do that is because of that control orientation we have, that part of us that is eaten up with sin that says, I call the shots. And the way that plays out practically, somebody that we love or we care about, maybe it's even ourselves, going through some kind of trial, some kind of difficulty, how do we pray for them? God, take it away from them. So who's king in that circumstance? Kingdoms have kings or rulers God is the only one who can be king of heaven. Kingdoms also have what I call rulees. Those are subjects. So who are the subjects of the kingdom of heaven? Who are those that are the ones that the king has authority over? This is uh, one of those ways that I use a sermon to make sure that you're still awake, okay? Okay. And so I'll ask a question and you respond back. If God's king, then who are the subjects of the kingdom? And the answer is his disciples, his people, those who have responded. Actually, the reality of it is it's God's king over everybody. But what Jesus is referring to here particularly ties to his disciples. And so in this case, we can say those who are the subjects, the rulees, as opposed to the ruler, is us. 
Now, let me just stop just as a question this time without hammering it home. Does your prayer life reflect that you're the rulee, the subject, as opposed to the ruler? That brings me to the real point of all of this. It helps us understand what Jesus is getting at, I think. What we establish is Jesus is God, is king. He's the ruler of all. We are his subjects. We're the ones who take orders from the king, if you will. And so one other thing that all kingdoms have, and that is a rule. There's a ruler, a rulee, and then just a rule. That is how life happens. I want you to think, if you will, of the laws of the United States. You don't have the freedom. Well, now see, there you go. You really do have the freedom because our laws are written in such a way that you can make a choice doesn't matter what the law says. You can choose to either do it or not do it. But you have to know that there are consequences for choosing not to live under the law of the United States. You can go out here and decide if you want to get out in your car, get on the highway, and go towards Kuntz. But if you decide you don't want to stay on the left side of the road, excuse me, the right side of the road, then you can drive on the left side of the road. Because if you can just choose to do that, that can be your choice. The problem with that is that you're going to hurt somebody, maybe yourself. And if we're fortunate, there'll be some kind of a law enforcement officer around to catch you quickly if you decide to do that. I'm, I'm, my mind goes back to the time we lived in New Mexico. There's a stretch of interstate highway that goes into Santa Fe from up in the northern part of the state, north, uh, eastern part of the state. And not long after we moved to New Mexico, there was a story of an individual who went out and spent all afternoon into the, or through the evening hours into the late night hours at a bar just getting loaded up. Got in his car, jumped out in, onto the interstate and started going home, but he got on the wrong side of the interstate. And he was able to drive at high rate of speed going the wrong way down the interstate for about 20 or 30 miles. Far enough that there were law enforcement cars on the correct side trying to catch him as he went the wrong way. And you know how that ended? Just the way you expect it would end. Came over a hill and hit a family head on and killed everybody in the accident. You can choose to play God. But there are consequences to that. This world is full of people, Christian people even, who have chosen to ignore this part of what prayer does for us. And they've chosen to say, I'm going to be God. I have a better plan here. Doesn't matter what God says. I'll take my chance with the consequences. And they pay the price. I love what one man said. You can... Choose to break God's law, but what you will find is you will break yourself on God's laws. And so when we come to prayer, Jesus says, be careful. In your prayer life, on a consistent basis, to pray for a revolution. Away from that self-control mentality that is ours. You see, the rule of life in the kingdom is that the king makes the rules. Our job, 
not like I meant it with my son, but our job is as his disciples, as his subject, as the rulees in the kingdom, our responsibility is to live in such a way that we reflect positively on him, that he be glorified and holified in our lives so that we let him be God. Let your kingdom come. It's a simple statement, but the ramifications of it reach all the way down in the way we live our lives, even into how we think. This is the regulation part of life in the kingdom. It's the part that says this is how you live. Now, the reason I wanted to spend some time on this is because we need to go back through all of the book of Matthew. Let me just give you a little bit of reading to do over the next few weeks, really. Work your way through the gospel of Matthew and listen to how often Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. We saw it in the Beatitudes, the first Beatitude and the last Beatitude have as their ending part the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. And he gives us the value of it. He gives us the nature of it. Chapter 13 in Matthew's gospel is one parable after another where Jesus says, and the kingdom of heaven is like such and such. It was an important concept for him because it's so foreign to us. Our lives are lived at the point of me and control and my happiness and my desires. And it's always only me. And that's what kills marriages. And that's what kills peace in family groups. And that's what causes one nation to go to war against another nation. It's always only me. Jesus builds into our prayer lives the opportunity for a revolution against me. Chapter 16. I want to ask you to turn there with me very briefly. Chapter 16. There's a couple of statements that I want you to see that are made here in a couple of different places over in that area. Matthew chapter 16. And in this, we have that account of Jesus and Simon Peter and the confession that Jesus has, I mean, excuse me, Simon Peter has, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, this is verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now there's that word again, or that phrase. Now, let me stop for just a second. I don't want to get too grammatical on you, but what's the preposition that I just read? Now, we usually take this passage and we push it on Simon Peter and Jesus says, and I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's not what Jesus says. I will give you the keys, by the way, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that puts in our minds that, uh, how would you say this, the the, uh, heresy that we entertain of Simon Peter standing at the gates of heaven letting people in or not. I don't think that's at all what Jesus meant here. But we kind of accept that, at least in the way we joke about it. Jesus doesn't say the keys to the kingdom of heaven. 
He could have said that. Greek language is a very specific way. He could have said, I'm going to hand to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and you decide who gets in, who gets out. He didn't say that. He said, and I give to you the keys, what's the preposition? Of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now, so what does that mean? Well, that's a whole different sermon, so I'm not going to try to give that to you now. You can do a little bit of homework on that, but let's keep reading. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly uh, charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, that's a basic turning point for the disciples. Jesus sees that they... Begin to understand who he is. You're the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus says, okay, now that we have that established. In other words, by the way, you're the king. So now Jesus takes him another step. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And here, here we go. Here's Simon Peter now, the guy who got it right. And Simon Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, You're nuts! Oh, I'm sorry, that's the road trammel version of what he said. He took him aside and he said, Now, okay, let me put the road trammel again. Come on now, Jesus, you can't be talking about that. If you're the Messiah, then that means that you're going to be the great victor. You know, the riding in on the side of a tank. You know, flags waving. The conqueror of all. That's who Messiah is. So don't be talking, Jesus, with that defeatist mentality. So let's see what he really said. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Question. Who's God in that conversation? And tell me that doesn't reflect how we often pray. Now, come on, God. You know, those preachers on TV, they say I'm supposed to have a ton of money. They said all I got to do is just believe it hard enough. I'm believing. How come I got no money? Who's God in that? Listen to what Jesus says in response to Simon Peter. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. <laughs> I got to tell you, I hate verses like this most of the time. Because when I find myself in them, it hurts to be a hindrance to the cause of Christ. And here's the key statement. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. key element a principle if you will that grows out of that statement that whole scenario is that we don't think the things of God very well and when we respond in ourselves and our reaction to the situations of our life is us centered that control part of us then that's where we see that we need a revolution. We don't need to be the ones calling the shot because we get it wrong when we think outside of the rule of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus 
just after saying, Peter, good job, great answer, let's move on, immediately has to turn around to him and say, Simon, 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 son, do you really mean what you just said? Matthew 18, let's look at another one. In my Bible, this is pretty much across the page. In Matthew 18, the first four verses, another element of this idea of the kingdom of heaven and why we need this revolution. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1, and at the time, or at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what's the answer to that? God. That's a no brainer, isn't it? You remember what I said? Y'all are still there with me? Remember what I said at the beginning? Every, king, every kingdom has a king. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? The king. Right? Well, the disciples apparently don't get that. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He, oh, by the way, what did the disciples mean by the question? Isn't there just a small chance, Jesus, that I might be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, just a small chance. I mean, after all, I got all of these awards when I was in school. I was Mr. Wonderful Athlete. I could play every instrument in the band, sing all four parts simultaneously in the choir. I must be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I know we would never say that. Well, let me just move on. Being too personal here. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, "Truly uh, Truly I say to you, unless you turn... Now listen to what Jesus says. Listen for the kingdom of heaven comment. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. All of this kingdom talk, and Jesus takes the level of thinking that we bring to the situation, and he flips it totally on its edge. You know what all of these things tell me? Just read through the book of Matthew and count the number of times that Jesus teaches relative to the kingdom of heaven. He's not only talking about the place, he's talking about the life, the rule that we live our lives by. He's talking about how that part of our lives that we plug in every day impacts us and the kingdom as a whole. And what he has said to us in these two examples, and I could give others, is don't trust yourself in that. Don't let that sin nature part of you get pulled into the mix as you make decisions in your life. He's the king. We're the subjects. And he has a rule of life for us to follow one of the first things that they made me do when I went to school in that last round of formal education that I went through is they made us sit down and write out a rule of life. Now, when I got the assignment, I thought, that's ridiculous. I thought that most of the time when they gave me assignment. You know why? Because my control orientation said, I don't want to have to write nothing. It's bad English, but it's exactly how I felt. But if you want to graduate, you know, you got to play their game. So, all right. So I sat down and I started trying to put together a rule of life. You know what that means? These are the guidelines that I use or will use in my life to get to the place I want to be in life. 
That was the most difficult assignment I think I had the whole time I was there. That's saying a lot because they took us to the ringer in that process. Never in my life have I had I sat down to that point and said, okay, this is what I think and this is how I'm going to live this way and this is what I'm going to do here. And step by step, they made us put on paper our philosophy of living, if you want to bring it to that level. You know what I found when I did that? There were some kind of religious things, but for the most part, it was just me making decisions on how I was going to live my life. That's the essential element that Jesus addresses when he says, pray in this way, your kingdom come. So he says here, part of the nature of this kingdom is that we come as little children. What does that mean? What does that look like? It's that needy part of us. It's that no pretense at all about how we live our lives. It's, it's as we come and we're dependent and we're submissive, just like a little kid. We went to the zoo yesterday in Houston. I always like to go over there to see my kinfolks. Well, my son and daughter-in-law met us at the zoo. But uh, I, I'm always most drawn to the monkeys and the apes uh, for a number of reasons. But uh, as I was watching them and different animals, you know, we got there at the perfect time of the day to see the animals sleep in the shade, and uh, which means it's hard to see them most of the time. So I started watching the other animals that were there, which were the children and parents walking all over the zoo. You know, and I, knowing I was preaching this today and knowing that verse was in there, I started watching the little kids. And you know, one of the things that I saw with little kids, they're just going to be who they are. You know what I mean by that? It's just take me or leave me. This is who I am. There's this one kid, bless his heart. He was not at all happy to be there. Screaming and yelling. I could hear him long before I could see him. And I thought to myself, praise God, that's not my kid. <laughs> and then there was another couple of little boys we went, they have a dinosaur exhibit there, so we were going next to that, and these little kids were looking through the fence, and they could see the dinosaur mock-ups that were in there, and they just let out screeches of delight. Wow, wow, and I thought to myself, praise God, those are not my kids going home with me. And I saw other kids who were small enough not to realize they were in the zoo. They just laid back in their reclining strollers. What a way to go to the zoo. I want one of those for me next time I go. Sleeping through the whole process. They just being who they were. Every one of those kids just being who they were. But there's a part of those children that I recognize locked into. They're just like your kids. And that is they can't survive without you. You leave those kids to themselves and let them do anything they want to do, they're going to get killed in the zoo because they're going to find a way to get in there with the gorillas. Because they're just so pretty looking. And the giraffes and anything else. Jesus says, unless you come as a little child, needy, submissive, you start to see this pattern. Jesus says, pray for the kingdom that it might come. But in order for it to come, we have to see what the nature of the kingdom is. And that is, you can't come in and try to be king. So pray for a revolution. Pray against self. Let me tell you something. We're in deep waters here. This is not surface level Christianity. 
This is the stuff that when you start getting what Jesus is saying here and start praying that way, it'll turn your life upside down. But it's the way to do it. And what will your life look like when this happens? Well, remember what we've already studied in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember those six antitheses? You have heard that it was said, don't commit murder, but I say Don't commit it as often. No, that's not what he said. What did he say? When you have anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. You start submitting yourself and some of those aspects of kingdom living start coming into your life as he lives his life through you. Oh, it's a pretty thing to watch somebody as they begin to bow the knee of their hearts on a consistent basis and say, God, it's really not about me, is it? And watch what God does in them and through them. So how do you get there? Well, first of all, Jesus said pray this way. So if you really want to go there and experience the best of the kingdom of God, beyond the entry-level stuff that leaves you in the corridors of heaven, so to speak, where you kind of get the flavor of the abundant life that Jesus offers. If you really want to get the abundant part of that, have a revolution in your prayer life. Let your kingdom come. Oh, it flows off the tongue so easily. I love the poetic sound of that. Let your kingdom come. But you have to know that that sets off a war inside of you. The king comes with his armies, and he will not be pushed off of the throne. So pray for it. Ultimately, we find this comes, as Jesus taught us in another place, if you would be my disciples, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. For those people standing there listening to him teach that, they would have known that when he says, take up your cross, that is a statement that comes from an execution scenario. We know it was true in his life and in his ministry, but he's not the only one to ever to be crucified. And those Jewish people knew that crucifixion was the worst form of capital punishment that the Romans had. And so it must have set off these alarm bells in their head. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, be crucified. Yeah, start a revolution. Because the first person that needs to die is you. Now, I'm not talking about the literal death. I'm certainly not saying go out there and finish yourself off. I am saying when it comes to the Christian life, to get to the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus talks about it, we have to deny ourselves to kill, die to ourselves, maybe is a better way for me to say that. And when we do that, then we can let him be king. Just a word of warning. You can decide to do that now, and now you've got to decide to do it again. Because that control part of us is so ingrained. It's our nature. Let your kingdom come. Bow your heads with me, if you will, and let's pray. Let me just make sure that we bring this home. Is it possible that some of us sitting in here today for the first time are becoming aware that even though we have 
acknowledge Jesus as God. We've never really taken the step to let him be God in our lives. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. We love the way that sounds. But you've got to know, in order for him to be that one who gives rest, you have to have a revolution. You have to say, I can't be God in my life. And the first step to genuine life, the entry point to the kingdom of heaven, and I'm talking about heaven in that ongoing eternal sense, it begins with a confession of relying upon yourself and a repentance of that, a turning away from that, and trusting him to be God in your life. He will do that. Only he can do that. And that's where it starts for you. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you surrendered your life to him? If not, now's the time. That's where life starts. We, in a minute, we're going to stand up, have a time of invitation, music plays. I'll just invite you to slip out of your seat, come down. We'll talk about what it means to be a Christian and how you can be a child of Jesus Christ.